You're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Well, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> and I'm personally excited. Uh, it's taken a while to get back through. Uh, years ago, I'd, I'd been studying Ephesians, and I got through about halfway through chapter 5. And then when we started Daily Thunder stuff, I says, well, I'd love to be able to continue my Ephesians study, but I don't have any of my early stuff recorded. And since we were going to kind of start a fresh new series, I thought, hey, I'll just start over and start from the beginning. And so I've been restudying and uh, walking through the book of Ephesians. And it's been actually, I think, far richer for me personally the second time around. Uh, it's just like God just deepens this whole thing uh, in, in, the, in my personal life. And uh, now, 85 sessions later, studies later, uh, we're finally through chapter 3. Woo! Praise the Lord. Uh, so anybody who's following along and been listening to all those online, uh, that's a lot of hours. So I'm sorry. Uh, but we're finally in chapter 4. So whew, this is an exciting day, at least for me, uh, which means that, you know, we have probably another 100 messages or so before we get to the end of the book, conceptually <laughs> at least. <laughs> Uh, but we're in chapter 4, and, uh, and what I want to do is uh, I, I just want to read the very beginning of chapter 4, and uh, I, I really want us to look at what Paul's doing in the book itself, because the uh, very beginning of chapter 4 is setting up the switch, if you will, of what he's doing in the second half of the book. Uh, so I just want to read the very beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, and this is what it says, Therefore, now, you know, that's as far as we're getting, you know, you know, uh, anytime you see the word therefore, you have to ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. So therefore, if we're going to figure out what the therefore is therefore, uh, we need to give some context. Uh, Ephesians is split in the middle. It has six chapters. Uh, the first three chapters is all of the theology, it's all the concepts, it's all the, the truth claims of what Paul is saying to those in the church at Ephesus. Uh, the last three chapters is the practical outflow of that reality. In other words, what Paul is saying is, okay, here, here is your life, here is your position, here is what you're called to, this is what your life's supposed to look like, this is your position. And then in the last three chapters, he says, let me explain what that looks like lived out down on your streets in the day-to-day -day activities of your life. Uh, it's interesting as you come to the theology section, the chapters one through three, the whole emphasis of these three chapters is your position in Jesus. Uh, which shouldn't surprise you because that's Paul's big thing that he's, he does on all of his books. But that your position is in Christ. In fact, 30 times in the first three chapters, that phrase in Christ shows up. And it's sometimes, you know, in Christ or in him or in whom. But over and over, 30 times, he's just on this mantra of in Christ, in him, in whom. In Christ, in him, in whom. And he's just going crazy on this idea that you are to be in Christ. So you, there's no wiggle room in the first three chapters. Hey, you have to come to the conclusion that my position, my life as a Christian is smack dab in the, in the person of Jesus. And so the way that I've been talking about the first three chapters is, uh, is the sitting language. Uh, Paul uses the language that in chapter 2 that you were seated in Christ in the heavenly realms. So if you want to summarize the first three chapters, you could probably summarize the first three chapters in that you are to be seated. Your whole life is to be seated in Christ. And then the last three chapters, Paul picks up, and if you, if you look at the rest of verse 1, Paul says, therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And he's using this walking language. So it's fascinating. You have this sitting language in the first three chapters, and then you have this walking, and then actually in chapter six, he says stand. But it's this language of movement in the last three chapters. So you have your sitting position in Christ, and you have your walking response that flows out of that. And so I've come up with dumb illustrations over the years trying to figure out how do, you, how do you articulate that reality. And the best one I have, and maybe the dumbest one I have, is, is an uh, electric wheelchair. If you had an electric wheelchair, your life is to be seated in that chair. 
that you're to be planted and you're never to get up from that position. You're to be seated in the chair, Jesus. But it's not an inactivity in your life. In other words, we're not about being passive. Because though you are seated and you're never to get up from that position of being in Christ, there is an active movement of that reality, which is your walk-in response. So again, it's an electric wheelchair idea. So I'm seated in the chair, but there's that cool toggle thing that, you know, you push on the toggle switch. It's, I, don't, I don't know what the sound of a wheelchair makes, but you know, it, it, there's this progression. There's this movement in the midst of you sitting. So I'm never to get up from my seated position, which is in Jesus, but while I'm seated, there's activity and there's movement and there's a walking reality of my life that flows out of that position. Does that make any sense? So if you were to summarize the entire book, that's the book of Ephesians. But since it doesn't look like you got any of that, we're going to have to walk through this and uh, just so you understand what's going on. So if, if you flip back a couple pages to chapter one, we're just starting at the beginning. And you're going to get 84 sessions here in hopefully under six hours. Just kidding. We'll be under four. Uh, but in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul starts this whole passage. He gives his introduction in verses 1 and 2. And verse 3 down to verse 14, Paul is giving a blessing section. And he says, hey, you are blessed. Isn't it encouraging to think that in Christ we have incredible blessings? And it's not that I have Jesus and then therefore he's going to give me some blessings. The whole emphasis of the passage is that Jesus himself has become my blessing. And as you walk through the blessings that Paul has for you, for example, uh, in verse 4, he says you're chosen. You've been chosen in Christ. Uh, in verse 5, you have adoption. Uh, you've been made holy and blameless. Uh, there's this idea that you have redemption and forgiveness in verse 7. You get wisdom and prudence in verse 8. There's this inheritance, which is really exciting. In verse 11, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, verse 13. There's a down payment in verse 14. And all of this is to the praise of his glory, which you see in verses 6, verse 12, and verse 14. But it's interesting, as you walk through every single blessing that God has for you, the conclusion you've got to come to is that I don't get Jesus plus a blessing. I get Jesus who becomes my blessing. Wouldn't that be amazing if you realized everything you needed was in Jesus? That every blessing that God has for you is in Jesus. And again, I keep using this illustration, but uh, you come up to God and say, God, I really need some love. And God goes, oh, I have exactly what you need. And he goes into the back storeroom and he pulls out a big bottle called love. He gives you a pill and you pop the pill and you're like, whoa, I got love. And you go about your day and you realize, oh, it wasn't love that I needed. I really needed some joy. So you run back up to God and say, God, could you give me some joy? And he goes, oh, I got what you need. And he goes in the storeroom. He gets a big bottle. It gives you a pill. Woo, I got joy. And you're like, ah, it's actually not joy. I need patience. And so you go to God, God, I need patience now. God, I need patience right now. This very instant. God, I need patience. He's like, take a breath. You know, I've got, I've got a pill for that. And he goes in. Do you realize that's not what God does? That when you go up to God and say, God, I need love, do you know what he gives you? He does not give you love. He gives you Jesus, who is love. God, I need joy. Do you know what he gives you? He does not give you joy. He gives you Jesus, who becomes your joy. Because as Psalm 16, verse 11 says, that he is the fullness of joy. God, I need peace. He does not give you peace. He gives you the Prince of Peace. Are, are you getting this? So everything you need, according to 2 Peter 1.3, is found in Jesus. So every blessing that Paul's making a list of in verse 3 down to verse 14, every single one of those finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. So in other words, what Paul is saying is, hey, would you let your life get wrapped up in Jesus? You have incredible blessings found in Jesus. And yes, he's given you a short list of those, but he's saying the blessing itself is the person. Now, as you get into verse 15, Paul begins his first prayer. And he's praying for several specific things. But as you walk through this, he, he says in, uh, in verse 17 that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And if you were back in that study, there's this idea that there's just going to be this unveiling. There's going to be this pulling back of a curtain of the deep things of God in your life. And I don't know about you, but don't you need the deep things of God in your life for this season of life? And there's a reality that, uh, that Paul is praying for, that in Jesus, that he becomes the, the revelation and the wisdom in your life. And then as he gets into verse 18 and 19, he's praying for three specific things. He says, I pray that you would know the hope of his calling, 
the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and that you would know the surpassing greatness of his power. And so the three things that he's praying for, again, it's interesting, everything that he's praying for in your life centers on Jesus. Isn't that fascinating? He says, I pray you would know the hope of your calling. He's not saying, I pray that you would have a hope, that you would have a very hopeful expectation that you get a calling. He's saying you have a calling, and because you have a calling, it produces hope. Uh, it's Christmas morning, and if you celebrate Christmas, uh, you know, you're a little kid and you're really excited because you want a pony. So you are hopeful that you get a pony. That's not this idea. This is, you have a pony, and you, therefore it produces hope. Which, that illustration suddenly broken down. But, in other words, I don't hope that I have Jesus, or I don't hope that I have a calling. You have a calling, which is Jesus, and because I have a calling named Jesus, it produces the hope in my life. That's amazing to me. He says, I, I pray that you would know the inheritance, the overwhelming riches of the inheritance that you have. And it's not an inheritance that, well, once you die, you'll get an inheritance. This is the, oh, the, you know, the pie in the sky, glory by and by. This is not like eternal shuffleboard. You know, this isn't, you know, sit on a cloud and, you know, sing kumbaya. This isn't like, you know, bonbons with no calories, you know, the candy bars with no sugar. This, this, it's not that kind of inheritance. Do you know what your inheritance is? Jesus. And isn't it an incredible thought that you do not have to wait till you're dead to begin to experience your inheritance? That you get to experience that inheritance right now. Why? Because that inheritance is Jesus. In fact, you have a down payment of that, verse 14, which is the Holy Spirit. Uh, he goes on and in the prayer, he says, I pray that you would know the surpassing greatness of his power. That here is God who has unlimited, overwhelming power, and he is taking that power, and he's moving in your life with that overwhelming resource and power. And Paul uses four different Greek words for the word power in that passage, trying to describe the indescribable power of God. And do you know what the power of God all focuses on? Jesus. In fact, Paul says, let me give you a few illustrations of the power of God, how the power of God has worked. And in verse 19, down to the end of the chapter, Paul says one of the illustrations of the power of God is the person of Jesus himself. That here is Jesus, deader than a doornail, and what did the Father do? The Father reached his hand, his overwhelming power, into the physical deadness of Jesus, and yanked Jesus from physical death and brought him into physical life. That's incredible! Please stay seated and contain your excitement. And if that wasn't good enough, and that would have been fine, but then God took Jesus, brought him into the right hand, sat him at the, brought him into the heavenly realms, seated him at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but in that which is to come. And he put all things underneath his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, the fullness of him. I mean, woo, this is exciting stuff. So hey, contain your excitement. But the power of God's demonstrated in the life of Jesus. Isn't that incredible? And Paul says, you obviously didn't get that, so let me give you another illustration. Chapter 2. And in verse 1 down to verse 10, there is the illustration of you. So the power of God is being demonstrated in your life. Well, how so? Here you are, deader than a doornail. Not physically, but spiritually. And just as the Father reached his hand into the physical deadness of Jesus and brought him from physical death and brought him into physical life— so too God in his overwhelming power reached into your spiritual deadness and brought you from spiritual death into spiritual life. That is incredible. Please continue your excitement. Okay, maybe that was a joke. Maybe you should have some excitement. Raise an eyebrow. Do something. Tell your faces. This is good news. Isn't that incredible though? That here I am spiritually dead and the same power of God that brought Jesus from physical death and into physical life took me from spiritual death and brought me into spiritual life. And if that wasn't good enough, and that would have been fine. But then he brought me into the heavenly realms and seated me in Christ Jesus. And therefore, everything that is underneath the feet of Jesus is underneath my feet, which I do not deserve. And it's not because of my worth or my goodness or my anything. It's because I'm seated in him. So the power of God is therefore demonstrated in my life. And Paul says, you obviously didn't get that because let me give you another illustration. So verse 11 down to verse 22, Paul gives the illustration of the church. 
And he says, do you realize that the body of Christ is a demonstration of the power of God? Well, how so? Well, Paul says, you have these two groups of individuals. You have the Gentiles and you have the Jews. And they hated each other. And it's not like they just hated each other. They like hated each other. Now, I know there's some animosity going on uh, in our current society. And you get, you know, whether it's the gender stuff or the racial thing or the Republicans and the Democrat thing or whatever, how, whatever language you want to use, there is a lot of frustration and hatred going on in our culture. But that was nothing compared to what was happening back in this day between the Jews and the Gentiles. See, the Gentiles did not like the Jews, and the Jews rather despised the Gentiles. In fact, the Jews, and this is Ben's favorite quote, so I'm going to give it because he likes to hear it. How this has become a model for his soul, uh, I think. Just kidding. <laughs> but the Jews so despised the Gentiles that in their mind, the only reason, because they were the God's chosen people, therefore, the only reason why God created the Gentiles and you know who the Gentiles are, right? You. <laughs> you know, it's us. The only reason why God created the Gentiles was because the Gentiles were going to be the fuel for the fires of hell. Bless the Lord. <laughs> Isn't that horrible? So it's like the Jews are saying, well, God chose us. Well, then why did he make you? Well, something has to fuel hell. There you are. That's why you're made. That is your calling in your life. Now, you realize that if you had two groups and one of them, their only, their presumption was the reason why you were made was that you're going to be the fuel for the fires of hell, it's going to be hard to be friends. And yet, Paul says, you know what the power of God did in those two groups? The power of God took those two groups and brought them together and every dividing wall has been torn down and now the two groups have been made one. And now peace has been brought forth by the one who is peace. So in chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus himself is our peace. And he broken down every wall of division and brought these two groups together. And it's not like we have Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. We now just have one group called Christian. Now that is a demonstration of the power of God. And if I could put that into practical, modern-day language, you realize that with all the different denominations we have, that's not biblical. In fact, when you read John 17, Paul, uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer, and he's praying to the Father, and he says, Father, I'm praying that my disciples would be one in the same manner that you and I are one. Have you ever pondered that? Do you know how one Jesus and the Father is? You can't become any more one than they are. They are the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They have so welded themselves. They are, they are one. They're three, I get that, but they're one. And yet somehow we are to be one like they are one? We are not doing a good job. And so it's interesting, when you look at the early church, again, Paul addressed this in the Corinthians, but we do not have the church of Apollos and the church of Paul and the church of Peter and the or in a modern day, we don't have Lutherans and Presbyterians and Baptists and Pentecostals and Methodists. It's the body of Christ. And I understand there's different expressions. I understand we, we don't come to full agreement on certain side issues. I, I, I get that. And I, whatever. But wouldn't it be amazing if in this generation, the body of Christ could in fact be one? And you're like, I don't know if that's possible. Yeah, I don't know that either. Because we, we are rather dogmatic about our little positions. And we are dying for dumb things. In other words, we, we, are, we, are, we are creating these dividing lines for the most stupid things ever. In fact, the dumbest one right now is the vaccine stuff. Why we're creating dividing lines on that is the dumbest thing in my mind, of all things. But, but what, why would we divide on how do you baptize? Do you sprinkle or do you dunk? Or do you hold under for five minutes? <laughs> I personally like the last one. Because that way you know. <laughs> you know? But why, does, why are we dividing over that kind of stuff? Why are we dividing over head coverings? Why are we dividing over some of these little nuanced stuff? We are the body of Christ. So you realize that when we get to heaven, there is not, I'm sorry, there is not going to be one single Baptist making it to heaven. 
They will not be in heaven. They're not making it. And not one single Lutheran's going to make it. And I'm sorry, we know there's going to be no Pentecostals in heaven. We know that. And we know there's going to be no conservatives, like deeply conservative, or there's going to be no reformed people in heaven. There's going to be, are you getting this? Do you know what there's going to be in heaven? Christians. And you are going to have to leave all that stuff at the gate if you want in. Why? Because this is about oneness. And I just love the thought, if God in this day and age could take two groups who are so opposed and at each other's throats, in fact, one group looked at the other and said, God only made you for the fuels for the fire of hell. I don't think we're quite there yet in our denominations. Maybe. But wouldn't it be amazing if he could take those two groups and make them one? Wouldn't it be neat to see what he could do in this generation with our denominations? We need that. Which is why I love this body. Because we have some funny people who come here. You. <laughs> and isn't it beautiful? We have all these people from different denominational backgrounds and theological preferences. And, and if, if we were to lay all those on the table, there could probably be some frustration in this room. And yet we have said we're going to sit around Jesus Christ and we're going to focus on the primaries. And we're going to love each other. Do you know what we call that? The church. Yeah, a group of Christians. Don't you want to be one? And Paul says the overwhelming power of God has literally removed every dividing wall and brought all these groups to be one as a demonstration of the power of God. And we need a fresh demonstration of the power of God in our generation. Uh, he comes out of chapter 2 and gets into chapter 3. And in chapter 3, in the first uh, 13 verses, Paul gives you one more illustration of the power of God, which is himself. Paul says, do you realize how I grew up? He says, I was a Jew of Jews. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And I persecuted the church. And of all the people who looked at the Gentiles and said, Psst, fuel for the fires of hell, I was the one. And yet, what did God do in the life of Paul? God so radically turned Paul's life upside down where Paul says, I have been literally given the blessing of God to become the apostle to the Gentiles. And now I get to proclaim the wonderful reality of the mystery of Christ to the very ones that I despised. And that is a demonstration of the power of God. And in that section, in verse 1 through 13 of chapter 3, Paul is talking about this mystery of Christ. That there's this mystery, as he says in Colossians, that's been hidden for ages and generations. And what is the mystery all focused on? Jesus. The mystery is Jesus. His eternal purpose and plan, as he gets in in verse 10, is all about Jesus and life and the reality of the gospel. Uh, in verse 14 down to verse 21, he finishes up this section by talking about, uh, or, or giving the second prayer that he prays. And we just walk through all this. Uh, but again, he's, he's talking about everything in the prayer focuses back on Jesus. Uh, so look at verse 17. He, he says in, in chapter 3, verse 17, that I'm praying that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. And he's not saying, hey, would you accept Christ into your life? Because he's already talking to the saints. So what is he saying? He's saying, hey, would you let Jesus be the very center of your life? Hey, would you let Jesus be the big deal of your soul? Hey, hey would you just get crazy about Jesus? He goes on from that and he says, uh, at the end of verse 17, that you are to be rooted and grounded in love. Well, he's not talking about a feeling or an emotion. He's talking about the one who is love, Jesus. Right? 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 and 16. God is love. So what am I to be rooted and grounded in? I'm not to be rooted and grounded in emotion. I'm to be rooted and grounded in Christ. And what would it look like just as a tree receives nourishment and stability from its root system? Wouldn't it be neat if you had nourishment, life, and stability because of you being in Jesus? And it does not matter the winds and the, the pressures of life. It doesn't matter the hurricanes that come into your soul. You can actually stand resilient because you are rooted and grounded in Christ. Uh, he goes on in verse 18. And he says, I, I pray that you would be able to comprehend with all the saints the indescribable, immeasurable love of God, which he says in, in uh, verse 19 that, that you are to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. 
And again, he uses that language of gnosko, that you are to embrace and experience the love of Christ, which goes beyond just the understanding, the intellectual understanding of it. What would it look like if we had that in our lives? That we weren't just esteeming the reality. We weren't just going, wow, look at the love of God. Isn't that phenomenal? But we were actually living it. That, that his love so overwhelmed us that it just was so filled us up that we could not contain it. It would just ooze out of every pore of our bodies. And all of this is for the purpose, Paul says at the end of verse 19, that you would be filled up to all the fullness of God. Could you imagine what it would mean to be filled up with the fullness of God himself. Now he ends these first three chapters. Remember, we're talking about the theology. We're just giving an overview of the context, uh, this whole seated position in Christ. He finishes that whole section with this doxology in verse 20 and 21. And let me just read this. This is so phenomenal to me. He says in chapter 3, verse 20, Now to him, speaking about Jesus, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? Do you know that your God is able? Do you recognize that it does not matter your situation? It does not matter the circumstance. It does not matter what you're going through. It does not matter the trial. Your God is able. In fact, our God loves impossibilities. In fact, as you walk through Scripture, and again, we just studied this out a couple studies ago, but as you walk through the Old Testament especially, it's like God purposely stacks the deck against himself because he loves to showcase himself in the place of impossibilities. It's like when, when everything is against you, it's like when you only have 300 military guys and you're surrounded by this entire Midian army and God says, God says all right, now you're at the right number. But, but God, we are so outnumbered. He goes, I know. But when I break through Gideon, no one will be able to take credit for this. You will know that I moved. Hey, Moses, when, when I split the Red Sea and you know that the only hope you had of survival was because I, I did this, you know it's because of me. And it's in the impossible situations of life that God seems to get excited about because when all things seem dark, when all things seem bleak, when there are no good options, and now it is absolutely impossible. By the way, isn't that the kind of movies we love to watch? Isn't that the kind of stories we love to read? That, you know, everything is horrible, everything is, and I probably shouldn't give some examples, but one of the best recent ones was the, oh, no, I shouldn't go there. Oh. I was like, I'll be digging a hole. But the Marvel movies, whether or not you like the Marvel stuff, that whole, that whole part one, part two thing, and at the very end of part one, Thanos just had everything, and it, it looked, there's no, there's no possibility. In fact, every, I love watching the little reviews going, I don't know how they're going to get out of this one. Because everyone, all the good guys disappeared. And how, how are they going to win the day? How are they going to bring, bring, how are they going to rescue? It's impossible. Which is why we love those kind of movies. It's, it's when, it's when uh, the, the fellowship of the ring is all split in pieces and, and now there's no hope. And how are two little hobbits with furry feet going to sneak into the enemy camp to throw a ring in a volcano? That's impossible. I know, that's why we watch it for 12 hours. <laughs> Wondering, can they get the ring in the volcano? And why didn't they just take the eagles in the first place and drop it in? And, you know, we have these questions that have to be answered. <laughs> but we love those kind of movies. We love those kind of stories. Why? Because it's, I think God wrote that stuff on our hearts. That God loves impossibilities. And when it all seems dark and bleak, he goes, oh, just watch what I'm going to do. And somehow it's like we're attracted to that in a story. We're not attracted to that in our lives. That's miserable to walk through. But yet wouldn't it be fascinating if you knew that your God was able in any situation to handle whatever it is that you're dealing with. In fact, he's not just able to do it. Paul says, look at this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that you could ask or imagine. So look at your impossible situation. Come up with your best case scenario. And God is able to go beyond that. In fact, 
as we looked at in that study, the language that Paul uses, there's a fourfold emphasis of that word beyond in that passage. It's not just beyond. God is not just able to go beyond your expectations. In the Greek, there's a fourfold emphasis. He's able to go beyond, 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 beyond all that you could ask or imagine in your situation. Meaning, I think he can handle it. What if we lived in that reality? What if we actually knew our God? What if we actually realized that he is working all things for his glory? Verse 21. That, that your life is, is to be this declaration of the wonder and the reality of Christ Jesus. That when someone looks at your life, they should be overwhelmed by what God is doing because your life is actually impossible to explain. That somehow the way that you live and the way that you talk and the way that you think and, and the way that you interact with people is, is so not normal that it is actually impossible for you to respond that way. How can you, when the economy is doing what the economy is doing, have rest and peace? How is it when so-and-so sits in the presidency that you could just have hope and confidence? How, how is it that when all this stuff? Why aren't you walking in fear? Why aren't you in trepidation? Why aren't you just constantly stressed because uh, I'm a Christian? Wouldn't it be neat if your life was actually impossible to describe outside of Jesus? Because the reality, and I, again, I use this quote all the time, but Ian Thomas said that if your life can be explained in terms of you, then you're not living the Christian life. That the only explanation for your life is to be Jesus. So if someone could look at your life and say, well, yeah, I can explain how you're living. Yeah, it's talent. Yeah, it's wisdom. Yeah, it's your personality. It's your whatever. Then maybe you're not really living the realities of Christianity. Because wouldn't it be amazing in this culture, as Peter says, that we're always to have a readiness to share of the hope that lies within us, which means people need to see that hope. And I love the times in which we live. I really don't like the times in which we live. But I love the times in which we live because for the first time, at least in my lifetime, everything that people have put their hope and their trust and their confidence in has been stripped away. All, all, the, all the pampering and all the comforts that we used to just kind of hide behind in American culture has been stripped away, which means people are now freaking out. And that's good for the Christian if we're living as a Christian because people can now for the first time say, you're not normal. How are you living this way? Because I, I don't have that kind of hope. Wouldn't it be neat if you actually pressed into the reality of Jesus, the one who was able to go beyond, 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 beyond in your life? Now, Paul says, <clears throat> based on all of that, therefore. And he's about to launch into the practical reality of the therefore. In other words, there's all this infilling. There's all this reality about being in Christ. Something should be flowing from that reality. What is it? Jesus in you. That here is your position, and your position is in Christ. And 30 times, again, in those first three chapters, Paul says, I am in Christ. But then he says, I need to explain what that actually looks like. Because we can't just stay in head knowledge. Uh, we can't just stay in theory. Do you realize that your manner of life, chapters 4 through 6, needs to match your theology, chapters 1 through 3? And yet for most of us in the church, we live on one side or the other, typically. Uh, it's interesting as you get into chapters 4 through 6, Paul begins to talk about what the in Christ life looks like lived out in all these different scenarios. And I'm not going to walk you through an outline of this, which I'm sure you're thankful for. Uh, but let me just get, can I give you the highlights. He talks about what the life of Christ looks like in the body of Christ, the church, practically. He talks about, hey, when you're by yourself, like who you are deep down inside, that that needs to express the life of Christ. He talks about your thinking and your speech, that it is, a, it is all to be doused in the life of Christ. He talks about your relationship with others, whether it's your marital relationships, whether it's your uh, parents and children, whether it's your uh, whatever those kind of relationships are. He's talking about the relational aspect of the life of Christ, that that, that needs to be seen. He, he talks about down at your job, 
hey, that this is to be done at your job. And he talks about the slaves and the masters things and, and the interaction even down at the workforce. And then he talks about in spiritual war- warfare, this is what it needs to look like. So he's literally walking through every aspect of life saying what we just talked about, chapters 1 through 3, in the life of Christ needs to be exhibited and expressed here in your life in the day-to-day moments of your living. Is that making sense? So let me give you two quick practical applications. And I want to talk about the practical applications in the negative. What it seems like what we are doing as, as modern Christians, it seems like we are leaning on one side of the book or the other, and we're not living by the whole book of Ephesians. But Paul wrote one book. He did not stop at, ch- at the end of chapter 3, took a coffee break, and a few years later, you know, he wrote chapters 4 through 6. He wrote one book at one time, and we need to live the entire book. And so there's a danger that we fall on half of the book, or we emphasize half of the book in our lives. And what I want to do is give you two quick practicals that you're not called to live on one side or the other. You're called to live the whole thing. So really quick, number one is what I'm going to call the posture. It's interesting that there are so many Christians who are living chapters four through six without chapters one through three. In other words, I'm living a religious activity kind of life, but it is not based on the reality of being in Christ. So I do not have the position of in Christ, but I'm still trying to produce the activities that's flowing out of that. Does that make any sense to you? In other words, you, you look at the modern church today and you have all these people who, who know when to stand and know when to sit and know the, know the right language and, and, and know all the kind of things that they're supposed to do, but their lives are actually self-produced and not coming out of the reality of in Christ. Can I tell you, if you are trying to self-produce your Christianity, do you know what the Bible calls that? Sin. Because you're living in an independence. And you're literally pulling yourself out of the reality of being in Christ, and you're good in your teeth, and you're trying to, you know, you're trying to produce the Christian life in and of your own strength and your own wisdom, and anything done out of self-effort and anything done out of independence from his spirit flowing in your life, biblically that's called sin. Even if it's good stuff. So I could preach and it could be sin in my life. How? Now God can still use the sermon. But if I say, God, once you sit this one out, let me just preach my sermon, and I turn within myself, and I self-produce, and I proclaim a message in and out of myself, even though God may use that, for me that was sin, because I pulled myself out of Jesus, and I tried to self-produce it. A prayer could be sin. If I'm getting in a group of people, and I want everyone to notice me and my ability to pray, and so the way that I, hey, I turn within myself and I try to produce prayer so I can impress other people, all that's coming out of a, is out of a state of pride, which is called sin. Well, I thought praying's good. It is. I thought preaching's great. It is. But it has to be sourced by him. So if I'm trying to produce my Christian life out of my own resource, out of my own ability, out of my own wisdom, out of my own talent, out of my own personality, then I'm actually walking in sin. And though I may have the religious activities and while the, while the people around me go, woo, look at a great Christian. Jesus says, look, that's not real. Uh, one of these scary verses, one of the most scary verses, uh, I think I'm, I've come across in my life is Matthew chapter 7. Because in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. And let me just read the last section of this, verse 21 through 23. He talks about knowing the tree by its fruit. He, know, he talks about the, the wide path versus the narrow way. And then he says, to the, he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but it is he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did, did we not prophesy in your name and, and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I Never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Do you, do you hear that? There's going to be a bunch of people who go to church, who have all their religious activities. In fact, I would look at these people and call them super Christians. 
Because if you had someone prophesying, casting out demons, and doing miracles, wonders, and signs, wouldn't you look back and go, whoa, super Christian. And yet Jesus says, yeah, I don't know you. We don't have relationship. That there's no intimacy with me in your life. So hey, psst, you're not making it. Which tells me you can fake it and not make it. That, that you can sit in church your entire life and go through the motions and no one to stand and no one to sit and know all the language and, and, and have, have duped everybody around you thinking that you have the reality of the Christian life, but deep down it's just a facade and you have all these activities without having the life. So you need chapters one through three in your life, not just chapters four through six. Because chapters four through six need to flow out from the reality of being in Christ, chapters one through three. And if you want an illustration of that, it's, it's the John 15, vine and branches stuff. That what is the job description of the branch? It's not to produce fruit. Fruit will be produced if it holds to its key job description, which is abiding. And when that branch abides in the vine, it will, without a doubt, produce fruit. So it doesn't have to sit there and struggle and gird its teeth and try to produce fruit. It just needs to abide in the vine, the life source. And as the life source comes up into the branch, flows out, oh, it will produce fruit. But not because of attempting and struggle and striving. In fact, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so yes, you can have all the religious activities. And yes, you can have all the little trappings of what that may look like. But if it is not produced by the life of Christ within you, what good is it? Because you're not going to make it. On the flip side of that <clears throat> is the people who have all the information and have all the knowledge and have all the, all the positional stuff, but then aren't living it. And so you have chapters 1 through 3, but you refuse to move into chapters 4 through 6. Uh, imagine, you're going to have to imagine hard, but imagine I bought a Mustang convertible. Because this is not real at all. I have a grandma car, right? But, but imagine I upgrade my grandma car to a Mustang convertible. And so I, I, I grab it, and I sit in the car, and I pull out the, the, the user manual, and I start reading it. Oh, it's so good. It's such an epic car. This is phenomenal. In fact, I start to memorize all the cool stats about the Mustang convertible and how fast it can go, how fast it can go from zero to 60 and, you know, and how much gas, you know, it takes. And, all, and I, have all, I have all the information. And you come up to me and say, hey, how's the car? I'm like, it is so incredible. You're like, how, where have you gone? Nowhere. I'm in, the, I'm in the driveway. Well, why don't you get in the car and drive it? No, 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 no. We're just here to look at it and read the user manual about it. You would look at me and call me an idiot and then push me out of the way, take the keys and drive, you know? <laughs> or at least that's what I would do. Why? Well, because it's meant to be driven. Do you realize the Christian life cannot stay in chapters 1 through 3? You're never to leave chapters 1 through 3. You are seated in chapters 1 through 3, the position in Christ. But the 1 through 3 is supposed to be lived out. It's not for mere theory. It's, it's for practice. Uh, around here, we've talked so many times about the idea that we have all these people who are really concerned about theological heresy. I want to make sure I have all my doctrine correct. And that's important. That's good. Because we don't want you getting weird th theologically. But there's something that we often forget that you could be theologically accurate and yet have behavioral heresy. That my life is not measuring up to the very things that I believe. It was interesting, I went to seminary, and there's all these people who had all the head knowledge, but their lives were miserable. They did not live this thing. Their lives were not working, but they could explain to you how it's supposed to work. I read an illustration not long ago about you go into a really fancy restaurant. Never been to one, but, you know, I'm imagining, right? Uh, but, but imagine you go to a fancy restaurant, and uh, two people are going to explain the desserts to you. Uh, one person comes out and says, oh, let me tell you about the desserts. And they have all, all the recipes memorized, and they have all the ingredients listed, and they, they can talk about that, ooh, that phenomenal dessert. 
And then there's a person who says, oh, I have tried them all. Let me tell you about them. Which one would you actually believe more? The one who knows, he does not know the recipes. He does not know what's in them, but wow, he's tasted it. Or the one who has all the facts and the information. Wouldn't you trust the one who's actually tasted the things? Do you know how sad it is in Christianity when we have all these people who know all the facts and know the label and know what's in it and yet have never actually experienced it? And they can't actually tell you what it tastes like because they've never tasted it. They've only read the recipe card. And so the other danger we have then is that we, we stay in chapters 1 through 3 and we know all the facts. And, oh yeah, I've got that position in Christ. And yeah, this is my position. But then it's not actually living in the everyday moments of my day down with my family and down at the job and, and with my friends and with... Do you realize we're supposed to be Christians? in the full book of Ephesians term, that we're supposed to have the information and have the details and and have the position, but we're also supposed to live it. And this cannot just be mere theory in our lives. This is to become reality. And again, you cannot live the reality outside of the position because this is not about you. This is about him and him working in and through you. That you have been given all things that you need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3. That everything you need is found in Jesus. So I can't just live my life for Jesus because it's going to be all self-effort. But I can't just hide over here and say, well, yeah, I, 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 I did Bible quizzing and I know the Bible verses and I got all the good information, but then my life looks miserable. Could it be that God is calling us to all of this? That he's calling us to have the position, but he's also calling us to have the life and we're not being passive in how we're living this over here. Can I encourage all of us not to lean on one side of Ephesians or the other, but to live the whole book of Ephesians, which is all about Jesus in you. Now, my position is in him, and that is to affect every aspect of my day in every area of my life. Is your life all about Jesus? Is Jesus the only explanation for your life down at your job? Is he the only explanation for your marriage? Is he the only explanation for how you you function in a family? Is he the only explanation for your thought life? Is he the only explanation for whatever it is in your life? We need that in this culture. And I think the reason why culture is, is getting frustrated and is shunning Christianity is because we have a whole bunch of people who have this fakeness going on. They, they, they have this external thing but they don't have any life in it. It's just duty and obligation and legalism. Or there's a whole bunch of people who are hypocrites because they talk a big talk, but then they don't live it. What if our culture actually saw Christians? What if our, what if our culture actually saw Jesus in the church? Pray with me. Uh, Lord, we need that. Lord, I'm so thankful that Paul didn't just stop with the theory and the concepts and the, the information, but that he gave the practicality of what this can look like down on the streets of my life. That there's supposed to be an outflow that comes from the inflow of you in my life. That the infilling of you outflows into my world. And Lord, I, I don't want to fall in, in, on, on either side of those where I just have the information and I have the head knowledge, but I don't live it. And Lord, I don't want to just live some thick facade and not have the power source behind it. Lord, I want to be a Christian. I want to be filled with the fullness of God. I, I want to have this in reality. Lord, I, I want this culture to see what a Christian actually looks like, not just on Sunday mornings, but every single moment of every single day. And even if someone could crawl up into my mind, they can see how a Christian can think and walk in purity and victory and freedom and triumph in love and joy with no fear. Lord, what would it look like if someone just listened to how we talked and they just heard what a Christian sounds like? Lord, what would it look like if they, if they looked at our marriages and our families and, and they just saw the reality of Jesus being played out in front of them? That they would have no excuse because the only explanation for our lives, the only explanation for our marriages, the only explanation for our families, the, the only explanation for our churches is you.
Lord, I'm so tired of our culture making fun of Christians because they're seeing the wrong thing. Lord, they need to see you. So Lord, whatever it is that you need to do in our lives to bring about a clear reflection of Jesus Christ, Lord, I want to say I'm in. And Lord, would you take this small body and would you so press us into the reality of Jesus that when someone walks into these doors, the, the only explanation they would have for what happens here is Jesus. And they're so overwhelmed by the reality of Jesus that they just, man, they can't escape it. They can't fall asleep at night. They just, and it's not facade. It's not legalism. It's not just duty and obligation and activity. It's, it's the practical living it out, but it's because we have life itself within us that we, the branch, are abiding in the vine and you, through the influence of the Holy Spirit, is the resource, the empowerment of our life through your, your grace and your power. Lord, we need your life. We are desperate in this generation for a movement of God. Lord, we're desperate in this generation for revival. Things are getting dark and we need your light and your love to so fill us up and ooze forth from every pore of our bodies that this world would have no excuse. So as Jim Elliott prayed, Lord, I pray that you would make us decision men and women, people that when the world encounters our lives, they are forced to realize that the gospel is real and must make a decision. So Lord, we come before you and just thank you for who you are and thank you that you don't just give us information, nor do you just give us these commands that we're called to live out of our own strength but that you've given us all things that we need for life and godliness. So Lord, we give you all the praise and the glory. We love you, Jesus, in your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. Know I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.